формат конференции дает мне возможность избежать излишнего политеса и необходимости говорить округлыми, приятными, но пустыми дипломатическими штампами. И как всякая война, война холодная оставила нам и не разорвавшиеся снаряды, образно выражаясь. Имею в виду идеологические стереотипы, двойные стандарты, иные шаблоны блокового мышления. In a fiery speech to the Munich Security Conference 15 years ago, Vladimir Putin harshly denounced the United States, fiercely criticized NATO enlargement, and called for a new security order in Europe. It, it turned out to be a manifesto outlining the Kremlin's geopolitical goals and a harbinger of what was to come. Just months after the speech, Moscow launched a crippling cyber attack against Estonia. And in the decade and a half since February 10th, 2007, Russia has invaded Georgia, annexed Crimea, and invaded Ukraine's Donbass region. The Kremlin has also orchestrated a series of assassinations in Europe, launched a campaign to interfere in elections in Western democracies, and backed extremist political forces in an effort to undermine NATO in the European Union. And, of course, today, Putin is engaging in his most brazen act of geopolitical extortion yet, effectively threatening to reinvade Ukraine unless NATO pledges no further eastern enlargement. The speech on February 10, 2007, was indeed a harbinger. And today, we'll look back at Putin's landmark speech and what it means in retrospect with someone who is in the room. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Washington, D.C. is Daniel Fata, who served as U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Europe and NATO in the administration of Portland former President George W. Bush. These days, Dan is a non-resident senior advisor at the Center for International Security Studies. Welcome to The Vertical, Dan. Thanks, Brian. Happy to be thank, here. Thank, thank you. And also joining us from Vilnius, the wonderful capital of Lithuania, one of my favorite cities in the world, is my old friend Konstantin Eggert, a columnist on Russian affairs at Deutsche Welle. Welcome back, Kostya. Hello, Brian. I want to start with you, Dan, since you were actually in the room when Putin made his speech on February 10th, 2007, and I wanted to get you to remember back to that day. You, you had an excellent piece for the bulwark on this. How did you react to Putin's remarks? How did others in the room react to, the, uh, to his remarks? Did you and others realize what a harbinger that speech would turn out to be? Well, um, you know, it was actually 15 years ago today, today uh, as we're that recording, that actually happened. Um, and uh, I'll start by saying none of us were prepared uh, for what would be a, about a 45-minute rant uh, and then an ensuing 15-minute question and answer session. Um, it was Secretary Gates's maiden trip uh, to Europe as SecDef, and in the position that I had in the Pentagon, I was uh, uh, me and Peter Rodman uh, were his two senior principals there. And um, you know, it's, it was not unusual uh, at that during the Munich Security Conference for a major non-German or U.S. speaker to kick it off in 2007. It happened to be Putin. We didn't quite prep, prep the secretary well enough. Uh, none of us could because, again, we didn't expect what came. And ultimately, uh, you call it the harbinger. I call it the launch party uh, of a resurgent Russia uh, because that speech that he made there, which he has now repeated in various forms over the past 15 years, really laid out the foundation for a litany of grievances he had with the U.S. in particular, uh, but also made clear 
that uh, Russia was back and that Russia wasn't going to be ignored and Russia was going to be a player. Um, it was fascinating uh, to be in the room uh, for just a few reasons. One, to watch Putin stare down Secretary Gates, John McCain and the U.S. congressional delegation, where if you were uh, um, if Putin was at the podium, all of the American delegation were to his right. And I was seated right behind this. So it was congressional delegation, first two rows, then Secretary Gates, then me and Ambassador Newland and Kurt Volker, and then the four-star military commanders. And so we were all on that side and the Europeans were all on uh, the other side. And uh, just watching the U.S. team was stone-faced and watching the European side, uh, a lot of the Western Europeans sort of nodding in agreement for a first good amount of that. Yeah, I wanted to prompt you on that because that, that was that caught my attention in your piece. Now, you, can, can you elaborate on that? Because that, that's very interesting, given the context of those times. Right, right. And so, you know, the context of those times uh, in the lead up to, to February, if you just pull it back just a few years, you had uh, the U.S. agree with Bulgaria and Romania to put uh, base uh, U.S. troops on, in the, on the soil of those countries. You um, we were getting ready to invite Albania, Macedonia and Croatia to join the alliance. Uh, Secretary Gates had just announced where a third site missile defense was going to be. Iraq war was not popular in Europe. You had a big uh, schism between the political left and right in Europe. And so you had all this brew that was going. And so as Putin was going on his rant about the U.S. and the hyperbolic use of force and breaking international law um, and you know putting troops uh, in Eastern Europe. You had a lot of the Europeans, the Western Europeans, nodding their heads. You saw a lot of the Eastern Europeans very nervous. Mm -hmm. They were very nervous. And so you, you can, saw this old Europe, New Europe divide in the crowd. Yeah. When, when Putin appeared to be talking about Iraq, talking about the hyperbolic U.S. power, he, he was channeling the whole divisions over Iraq there, correct? correct. Correct. He was. That's a great word. Channeling it. He was really channeling it and thought he could tap into something in in the European leadership that was there. And for again, for a good part of the speech, he was. He was channeling it, and then it changed. And we can talk about that in a bit. Yeah. No. If you could briefly set that up, because I want to go to Costia after that, okay. because, because the European you saw a change in the European de delegation as Putin continued when he stopped talking about what appeared to be Iraq and began talking about other things. Right. Correct. Right. That's right. So he was. He was. You know. Uh, uh, trashing uh, the U.S., and then he decided to to sort of uh, overplay his hand by now talking about the OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, and saying basically started to make the argument that that organization has been infected by the U.S., had been infected by sort of uh, political interests, and that ultimately what needed to be done was that needed to be a pan-European security organization essentially saying, and he would get to that in Q&A, without the U.S. influence and presence there and more of a Russian influence. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I mean, literally, I remember saying to Ambassador Newland and others, they just snapped out of their trance. Right. Like, at that point, now it wasn't about trash in the U.S. Now it was coming home to, wait, Russia may have designs on reshaping Europe. Yeah, and that's why he seemed to be using the, the the Iraq issue, which would get the attention of what what former Secretary Rumsfeld called old Europe, but the 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 older NATO members to get to what he really wanted to talk about. Right, what he really right. wanted to talk about wasn't Iraq; it was getting the U.S. out of Europe, reshaping the European security order, getting his sphere of influence. Uh, 
Kostya, I wanted to also bring you in on the context of this time as well, because Putin's speech in Munich came shortly after some other events in Putin's in the former Soviet space that had had upset Putin. The respect, the Rose Revolution in Georgia in 2003, and the Orange Revolution in Ukraine in 2004, which Putin saw as a U.S. plot to basically encircle Russia when, in fact, these things were just uh, organic, natural um, uh, 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 civic uprisings in these countries against authoritarian uh, governments. How did you see uh, the speech at the time? I know you interviewed our, our mutual friend, the former Estonian president, Thomas Ilvis, at the time. He was president of Estonia at the time and was in the room. How did, how did, how did you react, Kostya, and how did, how did, how did Thomas react? Um, I think that um, what you mentioned, Brian, is very important. You mentioned the Rose Revolution in Georgia and uh, the Orange Revolution in Ukraine. I would say probably until the annexation of Crimea, there was no single more important event in Putin's Russia history than the revolution in Ukraine, because it really blew up the Kremlin's perception of the so-called post-Soviet space and of and what's even more important, blew up its perception or completely uh, kind of overturned its perception of the future of Russia. Since then, there was always this fear that uh, uh, men in black from the CIA will come and, uh, and kick everyone out of the Kremlin with, with, with the crowds for hire. And I think that um, that really started to drive Putin towards creating this uh, reshaping Russian foreign and security policy, not as a policy of national interests and, well, to some extent, values to the extent they exist in a country in transition. But uh, I think that what we've seen for the first time in Munich was Putin deliberately presenting Russian foreign policy as a policy of the defense of the regime, which it still is. And the imperial control of the former Soviet space. Yes, because the idea is quite clear. First of all, you control the post-Soviet space, and these are the immediate environs of Russia, and then you can basically see where the trouble is brewing and prevent it. Um, that's number one. Number two, that works well domestically, because at that time, Russia started to um, 2007 was a time was it was a time of unprecedented prosperity for the Russian people. Nothing yeah. seemed like that since yeah. probably 1917, since the pre-World War One time. And I think that um, that was the time when this neo-imperial ressentiment, mm -hmm. when this desire to um, to 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 get back the glory started to pronounce itself in public opinion polls very, very, very clearly. Well, people started getting their salary. They started buying their duchess. They went on first holidays abroad. Look, I bought my washing machine. Where's my empire? It was there 10 years ago, 10 years ago. And I think that Putin at that time realized that these two things work for him practically. Uh, you drum up the security, um, insecurity of Russia and try to control the immediate uh, the immediate environment that basically works well with the with, with the crowd at home, and that is important from the point of view of the survival of the regime. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, what we've seen we've seen this uh, first time he conceptualized it, and of course compared to what 
the Kremlin, you know, the Lavrovs of this world say today, it was a fairly mild speech. Um, and it's interesting that, um, well, when you speak to Central Europeans that were in the audience, um, they say, well, we were not that surprised. Uh, Tom Ilves, the former president of Estonia, who you know as well as I do, uh, he said, well, you know, after Primakov was shouting us down for several years as foreign minister, uh, actually, well, Putin sounded fairly polite. It was nothing new. And I think that to some extent, um, this, is, uh, this is an important thing which we see at play today, because with this crisis uh, over the possible invasion, uh, the Central Europeans uh, and the Baltic states and the UK have taken a lead uh, which is unprecedentedly concentrated, well-condensed, inspiring, and I would say convincing. And I think that it, it took everyone 15 years to, to come to that and <laughs> to come to a situation in which the German appeasement position uh, looks like, well, they're, they're odd men out in, in these circumstances. And I think that if you look at what happened 15 years ago, that was not a given. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that that's true. I mean, I, I think you raise a lot of interesting points here. We have several things converging at the same time here around the time of this speech. You had, as you pointed out, Kostya, Russia's rising aspirations due to the, the macroeconomic stability, the rising prosperity, and the rising desire among some elements of the Russian population and more elements of the elite to restore Russia's greatness, if you will. You had that. At the same time, you had the threats that they were feeling as a result of the Orange and Rose revolutions that were seen incorrectly as a some kind of plot uh, hatched in some dark basement in, in Langley or the Pentagon um, or, 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 or the State Department to, to, uh, to basically encircle Russia. Um, and so you had these two things kind of <clears throat> happening simultaneously at a time when the U.S. was at odds with a lot of its allies over the war in Iraq. I mean, Putin saw an opportunity, he saw a threat, and these things all converged on this. I love your, um, I bought my washing machine, where's my empire? That's a, that's, that's a great line, Kostya. Uh, Dan, I want to bring you back in here, because was, how was, was this, within the U.S. foreign policy establishment, and in conversations with the allies, was there a sense that there is a renewed threat? Because let's face it, our attention was not on Russia and Eastern Europe in those days. Right. Um, I, I will answer that. Um, I, I, I think what uh, Constantine said was pretty important, uh, how he laid all that out. I think it's missing one piece, and that would come uh, when Gates would meet with Putin a month or so after the Munich uh, speech. And Gates wrote about this in his book. And uh, I, we were on that trip, myself and a few others. We were supporting the secretary. And what Putin would essentially say to the secretary was that you don't understand the degree of humiliation uh, that we as the Russian people felt following the collapse of the Soviet Union. It wasn't just the collapse of the Soviet Union, it was the collapse of the Russian Empire. And so you don't understand, you know, that sense of loss. Uh, second was that um, we were taken advantage of by the West in the 90s when we were weak. And that led to point number three. We're not, I, Putin, I'm not going to let this happen again. He never talked about a Soviet reunion Right. Because mm -hmm. to go to Constantine's point, by 2007, yeah, things were turning around. But, the, you know, the, the leadership team over there in, in Moscow knew that to have a Soviet reunion would cost too much. 
And so there, was, there, there wasn't that desire, but there was a desire to reestablish Russian pride, which is exactly what uh, Konstantin just said. To your to your question, though, um, you know, we took it as serious. There would be a tremendous amount of activity that would be undertaken to try to figure out where was he going with this. And so what would be launched are these two plus two talks. So secretaries Gates and Rice with their counterparts mm -hmm. that would go on for almost a year in the lead up to the Bucharest summit, trying to figure out, is there a way in which uh, we can figure out how we can partner? There were certain things that were left off the table, such as NATO enlargement, and then ultimately uh, Ukraine, Georgia would be left off the table, but trying to sort of figure out what were Putin's grievances and where could we meet him, whether it be to, uh, in areas of co cooperation, whether it be on nuclear terrorism, uh, disarmament, a whole range of, of activities. Well, we did take it seriously. Um, as Gates and others would say at the time, and even the national security strategy at the time, that we did not believe Russia was a threat to Europe in a conventional sense. Mm -hmm. But we did believe Putin was serious in his February 2007 speech, and therefore there was a degree of seriousness that was put against it at the time. Yeah, and if we look, I mean, we, we I, I remember those times, and we were kind of following this two-track thing. The U.S. was not changing its position on uh, on Eastern Europe or the former Soviet space in any way. In fact, in the years to come, the U.S. would advocate and support uh, the applications of Georgia and Ukraine to get membership action plans from NATO. Kostya, you and I were together at the Bucharest summit um, when, 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 when that all went down. I believe we actually met for the first time at Putin's press conference um, at the Bucharest summit. You were, you were with the BBC's Russian service, and I was with Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, when Putin gave what was, you know, was a, a very triumphant press conference before mostly the Russian press um, there, there, there in Bucharest when he felt he had successfully thwarted uh, NATO from offering map to to, to Ukraine and Georgia. So there was there was, but 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 there was this effort to kind of decouple the contentious issues with Russia from the non-contentious issues with Russia. Um, but 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 it, in, in looking back at it from in retrospect, it was clear where this was going now, but it wasn't entirely clear then. Cost you anything to add here? I think it's very good that you are bringing up the Bucharest summit because I yes. think that Bucharest to me, and that's probably kind of, it, it sometimes is confounded in, in people's minds, the Munich speech and Bucharest summit, because they're actually parts of this very important development um, uh, in which uh, Putin, I think in Bucharest, saw that uh, he's reaping benefits from the Munich speech right now. Uh, with Merkel and uh, Sarkozy saying uh, nine and no uh, to Georgia and Ukraine, and uh, getting the Central Europeans, especially as far as I understand, judging by, um, by, by talk to people who were in the room, um, especially uh, the late President Lech Kaczynski of Poland was went ballistic mm -hmm. on, on them. Yes. And I think I think that um, that's that happened actually after the recognition of Kosovo. Yes. And I think by, by that time, Putin already knew what he's going to do in Georgia. And I think that uh, he felt probably triumphant um, that uh, in, at a time that he's going to hand over temporarily uh, the presidency to Medvedev, um, he will kind of sign off, because everyone understood that what happened in Georgia wasn't Medvedev, but he will sign right. off with a very big black point with a parking man, um, saying, well, this is not probably actually a point. It's uh, actually just an intermission, um, more to follow. 
depending on how you react. And I think that what happened um, as a result only convinced him even more that he can go further, he can push the envelope even further. Um, I also think, and that is, I mean, to the extent we all became shrinks to Putin, uh, I think that after Kosovo was recognized, he thought, okay, they didn't really hear me. Well, I'm going to test them in Bucharest, and then I'm going to test them even more. Right. And I think that in this respect, 2008, which is a pivotal year. Yes, nation, 2008 is an absolute In the history of Ukraine, history of Georgia, and because of that, in the history of Russia. Uh, I think that 2008 is to a large extent a, a consequence, a, a continuation in many, in many ways of what happened uh, in Munich in 2007. Brian, can I pick up on that? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm going to put contextualize this, but go ahead. Yeah. Uh, so I, I couldn't agree with Constantine more. Um, it was. Um, <clears throat> and the whole two plus two talks that started in May of 2007 all were the lead up to Bucharest because the, the Europeans were saying and, you know, one of the, one of the there were a couple of things that came out of that Munich speech. One was that you saw the divisions in Europe. Some wanted to, wanted to just meet Russia where it was. Others said, look, we've we got a serious problem here. Two was that it was clear the U.S. was the only country that could talk to Russia and, and try to establish some kind of uh, – not peace, that's the wrong term, but meet Russia where it was with any kind of legitimacy. And third, uh, it was clear that uh, Putin was going to use his influence. So that whole lead-up, those two-plus-two talks leading up to Bucharest, absolutely were trying to figure out how not to make Bucharest a failure. What we kept hearing throughout – and the, what, what you guys heard, I was at Bucharest too with the, with the president's delegation, uh, was that Georgia and Ukraine were a red line. Particularly, it came even more vociferous after Kosovo. And I, I think to your point, Constantine, I think Putin did feel that because MAP wasn't extended to Georgia and Ukraine, that he did have a victory. But as I said to Secretary Gates at the time, the problem is that the language that was ultimately agreed to will one day become members means Putin controls the timeline now. It is no longer in Georgia, Ukraine, or NATO's hands. It's in Putin's hands. And for that, I think he probably felt a victory, but also wasn't going to let this slip away. And we saw what we saw a few months later in August of 2008. Brian, Brian can I ask something? I, can I usurp uh, a bit of your... Uh, of your of your powers and ask one short journalistic question to uh, to Dan because sure go ahead go ahead you usurp my powers you, know, <laughs> you know I'm taking over thank you very much uh, 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 will be the new host of the power vertical from here on out <laughs> uh, with all the uh, all, all this kind of um, avalanche of analysis of what what happens now with the kind of Russian threats to Ukraine uh, there are people who who say especially in uh, in in Western Europe well. Uh, probably you didn't give map to Georgia and to Ukraine in 2008, probably shouldn't have given them promises at all. Just said, well, no, thank you very much. Right. Try another time. Because giving this promise uh, created this permanent tension, which Putin could switch on and switch off anytime. Do you agree with that? I've heard this uh, a couple times, and I, like David Kramer and a couple others, we were adamant that um, – where this sort of where this administration is right now and where Europe is, is that no external party can determine the fate of another country's, uh, whether they okay. want to align with the West or not. And so I still believe at the end of the day, that kind of hopeful language was important. I think we should have extended MAP at that time. And this was the argument against MAP was that at that time, no country that had ever been given MAP had never got into uh, NATO, okay. eventually got in and the EU. 
<laughs> and so if you're Putin, uh, and if Putin is talking to uh, the European leadership, they're making that point. Look, I told you what my red line is. Every country who's ever been gotten it has got there. This is a no for me. I would have liked to have tested that hypothesis because there was there is no timeline on map. Ukraine and uh, Georgia could have been in map for 10, 15 years. But uh, I think some of the language ultimately that was left, yes, it did. Again, where Gates said to me, you must be happy. I said, no, we no longer have control. I, I applaud them for trying to find a way, but ultimately I think yeah. it put too much control in Putin's hands. And, and my understanding was that whole promise thing was a, a political compromise that was effectively brokered by, by Radek Sikorsky, the, who was then the Polish foreign minister, and and uh, Karl Schwarzenberg, who was the Czech foreign minister, who I remember, I remember speaking to in Bucharest about that, break, brokering this compromise between basically Bush on one hand, the, the Americans on one hand, and the, and the Germans and the French on the other, and it was kind of this thing that no, you know nobody was entirely happy with it. Um, nobody was entirely unhappy with it either. Everybody right. was spinning it as a victory. Um, my understanding is that uh, Saakashvili, uh, Mikhail Saakashvili, then the president of Georgia, who is known to be very mercurial, was trashed his hotel room. <laughs> After Georgia didn't get map, I heard that from from some of my Georgian sources at the at the summit. But the other thing to bear in mind here too is there was a bunch of things going on at this time. Two thousand six, two thousand seven, two thousand eight. You effectively had following the Rose Revolution, you kind of had a little backsliding in Ukraine. Remember, Viktor Yanukovych, the pro the former pro Russian president, his party of regions won the parliamentary elections in two thousand seven. Yanukovych returned as prime minister, so you had this cohabitation period. You had kind of political chaos in Georgia right now, where, where a lot of it provoked by Russia, right? The demonstrations in, 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 the, in the center of Tbilisi in 07. Um, and you clearly had Russia trying to meddle in Georgia and reverse the orange, uh, the Rose Revolution. You had the political transition in Russia, which is creating a lot of nervousness, right? That this whole idea, would what would, would Putin go for a third term or would, would he change the constitution? What he turn, end up doing was doing the, 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 the little uh, castling move with Dmitry Medvedev. Um, but this was a, a period of political uncertainty in Russia. All of these things kind of converging at the same time. Um, was this change, was this situation perceived in, in U.S. foreign policy circles? Dan, you were kind of in the center of all you. You and David Kramer were kind of in the center yeah. of all of this. We were. We were in the center of it. You know, there was so much. It's, you know, as they use the sports analogy, it's so much easier to be a Monday morning quarterback, right? Uh, or as I yeah. often say, if I knew the airplane was going to be delayed that long, I would have gone another way. Uh, but you should never know how long an airplane is going to be delayed. Um you know, uh, we, they were all inputs, but you've you got to recall this was the Bush administration. We were about freedom and democracy, um, and we believed that these revolutions took uh, took place for a reason because people wanted to have uh, choice. They wanted to have democracy. They wanted integration. And so, you know, the, the, the Yanukovych's party and, and other things are happening. That's the messiness of democracy. Uh, right. But, you know, the view was was that still the overall trajectory of what the people wanted in both Georgia and Ukraine was for integration with the West. And, you know, we would work with whoever we had. But you still had uh, Yushchenko and um, and uh, Saakashvili at the head uh, that were driving the integration. Thinking back to those times, it looks like another universe because Putin and Bush actually had a pretty good personal relationship, and the United States was not really giving up on Russia yet at that time. But at the same time, um, and I think correctly, 
Um, I think this is this is one of the areas in this administration where I, I was in complete agreement with them of getting Georgia and Ukraine into NATO and of, of promoting these trends that were organically happening. They were not created by the U.S. They were organically happening, but but the U.S. is going to support um, kind of you know pro democracy uprisings in, in in states with with corrupt authoritarian governments. How did was there a sense that this is a difficult needle to thread, Dan, between kind of maintaining this good relationship with Russia and, and Bush and Bush and Putin did have good personal relations? But and 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 at the same time pursuing this policy in the former Soviet space. Um, yes, it, it was difficult to thread that needle. I mean, uh, Secretaries Gates and Rice and Hat and then National Security Advisor Hadley, they would spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to thread this needle. Uh, you know, there's there's plenty of conversations that took place of which some of us were party to, some of us weren't. Uh, but even then, there wasn't unison on what's the best way to do it. And I think at the whole time, the, the president did want to try to maintain that relationship with President Putin. He committed to go after the Olympics uh, to uh, uh, to meet with uh, with President Putin in um, uh, in the on the uh, on the Black Sea, uh, I think that was important to him. But I can't say that after the events of Georgia, where I think the entire uh, all of us we weren't surprised uh, ultimately by what happened. I think we were surprised by. Um, how, what the Russian, what the Russians pledged, uh, their what their intents were, intentions were, and what they were going to do, were not going to do. I think at that point it, it really caused a riff uh, in the yeah. in the administration's relationship with Russia for sure. Something that then the Obama administration would try to reset, but I don't think the trust was ever there. And I think there's a lot of the yeah. career numbers yeah. that took the the lessons of April 2000, Munich 2007, April 2008, and then the war in August of 2008 to heart. Yeah, I know you want to say, but I always want to throw throw one more thing out there to you as well before we shift into the second half where we bring this up to today. But you and I both know that Putin doesn't make it, Putin plans out his moves very, 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 very carefully. What do you think he was trying to accomplish with this speech? Do you think that this all went according to Putin's plan, or was he improvising? I mean, what what, what do you think he was doing here in Munich and, and in the years that followed? Well, you can't predict, and I don't think that Putin is, well, that crafty that he sees five years ahead. Uh, but I think he wanted to make a statement. He wanted to test the waters, uh, because at that time he could be pretty flexible um, and uh, could roll it back if he wanted to. Uh, but he wanted to see uh, what kind of reaction he's going to get. And I think at that time he not only with the speech, but, but his whole diplomatic and intelligence apparatus, was working in trying to um, figure out whether there is a rift deep enough between the transatlantic allies and the, both sides of the Atlantic to exploit it. I think mm. it started during the war in Iraq when um, uh, Schroeder and uh, uh, the then Chancellor Schroeder and, and uh, uh, President Chirac of France uh, told them, you know, the U.S. is making a huge mistake. President Sarkozy of France, right? Yeah, no, in 2003, during oh, the beginning three, of the three, three. Okay, okay. It, was still, it was still Chirac. Uh, they were telling him, oh, well, the U.S. is up to their uh, old imperialist tricks. Keep your distance. Uh, don't, 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 keep your distance. And I think that was the beginning when, when they started to basically move away yeah. from this kind of attempt to... Uh, Maintain this relationship, which was there in 2001, 2002. Mm -hmm. Remember 9/11, uh, uh, Pratico di Mare, 
uh, NATO summit and stuff like that, creation of NATO Russia Council and things like that. Uh, and I think by, by 2007, due to the circumstances, including domestic ones, which, which we, we discussed, uh, he felt that's a good kind of, that's a good pitch to test the situation. And I think that we shouldn't forget the Baltic states were already this kind of testing ground when two months after the speech, yes, uh, the first ever uh, cyber attack against, well, basically a state uh, was launched by, well, we know Russia against it was Estonia. In April, it was in April of 2007 against, against, against Estonia. This is your hybrid warfare. And I think that not enough attention was paid to that. Again, and then you have the Bucharest summit, and not again. And then, of course, after the invasion of Georgia, you had the Sarkozy plan, which Sarkozy himself uh, forgot probably 15 minutes after he signed up to that. <laughs> and and yep. then, Prince, well, it's a wonderful world, to quote a song. I mean, it's, 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 it's wonderful. And I think that, and the Bush administration was out. And then, of course, reset, which was mentioned. Um, I don't think that you could reset relations with Russia. Uh, on psychological premises that were used during this reset. And, yeah. Well, there were uh, different think, impressions of what that yeah, meant. Yeah. And also, I think that in the run-up to, I want to share a story of my own. A month before the Russian invasion of Georgia, early July, I was in Berlin at the home of a very close friend of mine who works at the German Foreign Ministry and uh, very well known to you both. I'm not going to name. There was a guest there who was uh, working for the German Foreign Ministry and who was, let us say, one of the most responsible people for the South Caucasus and Georgian group. And I told him, and that's kind of what we're talking about early, early, early July, I said, look, after the Kosovo recognition and Bucharest summit, I promise you, Putin's going to do something about Georgia. Whether it's going to be opening direct railroad links, because there were already railroad trips there, or it's going to be direct air link, or it's going to be something else, but he's going to stake his claim on Georgia, mm -hmm. because he promised it, and you're asking me what he achieved with his speech. In his mind, he achieved one thing, which he always likes to achieve. He could say after it, I warned you. Whatever I do, I told mm -hmm. you so. I was never insincere about it. And this German diplomat, who is still, thank God, alive, he said, no, well, this guy, is armed, knows everything, right. always. And, you know, it's all ridiculous. It was that something like, you're a journalist, you know nothing. It's important for Putin to keep Georgia under control and ambiguity in Abkhazia and South Ossetia gives him his, his chance. So he's going to continue forever. I said, mm -hmm. no, you didn't hear him. He told you so repeatedly. And after Kosovo, he's going to do it because he told you he's going to respond asymmetrically. They love this word. In yes. Well, I wonder what this person thought on the 8th of uh, right. August. 2008. Right. But why I'm saying that is not to say that I have nice dinners in Berlin when I go there, but because uh, the degree of incomprehension and um, complete misreading of the Kremlin mm -hmm. in Berlin and to some extent Paris, a bit less in Paris, is such that it still blows up my mind and we and in the, you know, we've seen that now. We've seen where it led to. This yeah. incomprehension yeah. of maybe it's a hidden desire not to comprehend. 
Because yeah. when you comprehend, you have to act. When you don't, well, you can well, prevent. And, and Georgia didn't even really break the spell. It took the annexation no. of Crimea to break the spell with the Germans. There's one other element before we shift gears into the second half, and I'm, I'm glad you kind of focused on Georgia there for a bit, Costia, uh, because another thing was going on at this time, and this is, gets less attention, and that was the military reforms that Russia was carrying out that began under Serdukov and then continued under Sergei Shoigu afterward. And then you see the testing of those military reforms in Georgia, where the Russian armed forces actually did not perform very well. Um, the only thing that saved the Russians was the Georgian armed forces performed even worse, right? But I, I think after Georgia, that kind of prompted additional intensive and, and intensification of the military reforms that got us to this period now where Moscow can, feels confident that it can act uh, much more aggressively, even in a kinetic sense, and going beyond these just efforts to divide the alliance. And on that note, I want to shift gears. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and look at the relevance of Putin's speech today as Russia encircles Ukraine with troops and, and issues ultimatums to NATO and the United States. I'd like to remind you that you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm going to assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Washington, D.C. is Daniel Fata, who served as U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Europe and NATO in the administration of former President George W. Bush. Bush. These days, Dan is a non-resident senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International uh, Studies in Washington, D.C. Also joining us from Vilnius is Konstantin Eggert, a columnist on Russian affairs at Deutsche Welle. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Format конференции позволяет сказать то, что я действительно думаю о проблемах международной безопасности, которыми мы вместе могли бы работать над строительством справедливого и демократического мироустройства, обеспечивая в нем безопасность и процветание не для избранных, а для всех. Благодарю вас за внимание. So when Putin gave his Munich speech on February 10th, 2007, we were all living in a very different world. The United States is bogged down in an unpopular war in, in Iraq and, and, and alienated from many of its allies in Europe, but its global leadership was still unchallenged. The wave of populism, xenophobia, Euroscepticism, and anti-Atlanticism was yet to fully manifest itself. And while Russia was resurgent, it had yet to become the foreign policy menace that it is today. In this segment, I wanted to ask both of you to talk about how we got where we are today. How much of this is a result of Putin's posture post-Munich, and how much of it is self-inflicted? And what steps can we take to reverse the current trends? Dan, why don't we start with you on that? Okay. Well, look, <clears throat> partly it's, it is self-inflicted, uh, and that's largely um, <clears throat> sort of American attitudes following uh, Iraq um, uh, that we see with President Obama when he comes into office, and really the desire to, to pull back. And you'd see this manifest itself uh, with Trump with the ending of the forever wars, and we see where we are today. So, you know, uh, a lot of 
the space that was allowed for Putin to be able to fill was a result of sort of um, the American attitudes changing with Iraq and Afghanistan wars. I also think that President Obama was not, um, this is not meant to <clears throat> be a slam on him, just was not as um, as active as President Bush was and his successor, predecessors were when it came to a freedom agenda. I think it, yeah, the, not that the uh, President Obama didn't have a, uh, a democracy agenda, but I think it was a different one. And I think, you know, frankly, some of the actions that took place uh, pot in, uh, in Georgia could have put some pause uh, into that administration's thinking. Um, I would also say that there was changes in Congress too. In 2010, you saw the rise of the Tea Party. The Tea Party first first came to power, and it had very much of an isolationist or not an overactive or internationalist or globalist. And so, again, you see a lot of these changes happening. When it comes to Europe, though, I would say that the, there was there were fractures. There were fractures in 2007 with the Munich speech. There were fractures at 2008 with Bucharest, and then there were fractures, as Constantine just pointed out, following the Russia Georgia war of 2008 and really how to deal with this. And again, that just helped create space. One more point that I think was important, which would ultimately, uh, you already have the ground set in uh, post-August 2008 in Georgia, would you have Obama's Syria red line speech of 2012 that was not enforced? You know, Obama made clear if there's chemical weapons used in Syria, that there'll be a red line for the U.S. and we'll take action. It came, it went, nothing happened. You know, about a year later, we now start to see the actions take place mm -hmm. in Ukraine. The Biden administration, sorry, Obama administration didn't do anything to roll back Georgia. It left it the way it was. And so for Putin, okay, not going to be a lot of pushback. You see a change of political leadership in Europe. You got the red line. And so for him, that probably was a green light to now test this once again. Now, I want to press you a little bit, Dan, on this, because I, I, I agree with some of what you said, but I want to add a little bit more context. Sure. Can, and as somebody who served in the Bush administration, can the argument be made that be, due to the fact that the U.S. was distracted with Iraq, um, that was foreign policy priority number one uh, right. for, for a while? Did this give Putin the space due to the fact that the U.S. was kind of distracted there? Uh, did this give Putin the space to kind of uh, create kind of a, a resurgence of Russian revanchism? That's number one. On the other hand, with the Obama administration, you you, you correctly pointed some some things out. I mean, I one of the things that bothered me there, and I, I, I supported that administration, um, was that there was this tendency to want to distance the administration from things that were perceived as quote unquote Bush projects. Um, and you see, a, you saw a noticeable pullback <clears throat> from the administration. In Georgia, in particular, Saakashvili was kind of seen as this Bush project that the Obama administration didn't really seem to want to have a lot of time for. I mean, this stuff tended to be given to Biden. This was basically Biden's portfolio. He was the one who was traveling to Tbilisi and to Kiev and to Eastern Europe. I, I called him the reassurer in chief at the time to say that the, the administration was not abandoning these parts of the world. So I think uh, looking at these two things in tandem, I mean, uh, we try to be bipartisan here on the Power for Good podcast. So I want to yep. kind of, I think there's a Enough, enough blame to go around. How would you? How would you? How would you respond to that? Um, so on the first part, was Iraq a distraction that gave Russia space? Uh, was or was America distracted by Iraq? Uh, I still don't believe that. I don't believe that America was distracted where that gave Russia space. I think what happened was there was a, a distaste, a disbelief amongst Western Europeans with America that uh, to Putin as he looked at that that they that may not be an automatic yes. Europe may not be an automatic yes uh, for the uh -huh. United 
States. And so I think that with, as Constantine pointed out, the rising economic situation in Europe uh, allowed Putin some ability. I would also say, as Constantine pointed out earlier, you know, what the first uh, few bloody noses that Russia got in the Georgia war really forced a rethink in Russia. And I was told at the time that there was actually a German company that did, uh, uh, had a simulator that could uh, model and sim uh, the kind of combat that was done uh, in Georgia so that the Russian forces could learn from what they, uh, the mistakes they had made, which made them better for the Ukraine uh, mm-hmm. conflict. Um, and send to your second, um, I think that the, uh, the administration, so the follow-on administration, the Obama administration, um, I think that they thought the Bush administration overplayed its hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what I think when it came to Europe when it came to Russia, Georgia, and they didn't really have an appetite for a a robust Russia uh, engagement strategy and policy. And so therefore they defaulted to one where reset was really, let's take some of the Russian grievances off the table. So let's find a different place in Europe for a third site. Uh, They didn't really slow down on NATO enlargement. They were, they continued to push for Montenegro and the other stuff, but uh, some of the things that really irritated Putin—they—they they were they you never heard you didn't hear them as pro Georgia or pro Ukraine as the previous administration. Now, granted, you had new leadership, but you no longer heard about Western integration. And so, in some ways, while Biden and others may have been the reassurers, as you said, I also see a, a downshifting in the relationship uh, for uh, integration with the West and with the uh, with Russia. Mm-hmm. Kostya, how do we do? Wanted to add to that. Go ahead, and also, like, how do we how do we reverse this trend now? Uh, well, just to follow up on what Dan said, I think that although I agree, the Obama administration uh, committed a lot of mistakes. Um, I think that at the same time, um, with uh, Medvedev as president, uh, you, I mean, they could be forgiven for trying something new because if anyone tells you. I knew from day one that Putin is coming back to the Kremlin on such and such date and time right. in uh, 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 2012. Tell this person, I mean, you're a charlatan. Because no one knew. No Inside one knew. Moscow, Nobody there were people who were saying, but no one knew exactly. Few people would believe that the aroma of the Kremlin would not have a desired impact on Dmitry Medvedev. So I think that this desire to take a step back and try to tr- tr- play some, try something new, I mean, it's understandable. You know I'm a big critic of, of this administration. Uh, but I, I, do, I do think that that was, that was understandable. Let's put it like that. Uh, later, they should have figured out already. And uh, I think that what compounded the disaster in the last couple of years of the Obama administration, uh, it's the... Uh, uh, it's it's of course the the terrible performance uh, of uh, John Kerry, the Secretary of State. I think it was it, it was a Titanic, really. And uh, Lavrov was poking fun at him openly, and he didn't even see that. So I suppose that this was where, where the Russians used it. Uh, but coming back to your question, uh, how do we go about it today? Well, I think that. To some extent, uh, it's a function of time. And uh, 15 years later, it's a different world in many ways that lived through the crisis of 2008, that uh, lived through kind of all sorts of Russian military action, um, and lived through a certain transformation of Europe, including, by the way, Central Europe and the Baltics, which have now firmly positioned themselves 
at the center of European policymaking, be it on security, be it on the European Union, whatever, especially on foreign security policy of both uh, the EU and to some to the extent you can talk about NATO. Um, I also think that there is one thing we should mention. Putin is not becoming younger. Lots of people <laughs> changed in these 15 years in different chairs, including John Kerry, who mentioned, and Obama and whatnot. But Putin is still there. And I think that ability to analyze things properly is diminishing, including, I think, that's an important factor, the fact that he's been in isolation for two years. Uh, and to me, as someone who is not only a journalist, but as you know, worked in corporate PR for some time, um, I find some really interesting details, which to me tell, well, it's not going right. And it's not about Ukraine. It's the fact that Putin shows up and in these weird environments, this long table he uses to talk to Macron and Orban, an amazing Christmas service for one in a church in which he's the only parishioner. <laughs> um, this uh, sitting alone in the uh, in Beijing during the opening of the Olympic Games, it, to me it tells something. And he's always without a mask, so he wants to be safe. But but because of that, he has to create this kind of empty space. Right? What I'm saying that may not seem relevant. But to me, it tells one important thing. He's not taking any advice on his image making anymore. Mm. And actually, there is no one to kick in the door and say, Vladimir, you know, you really right. messed up this time. So, so he's, 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 he's not managing it anymore, right? Yeah, yeah. So, and you remember that 10 years ago, actually at the time of the meeting speech, Putin uh, hired Ketchum. Yeah. He hired the former BBC uh, roving man, uh, Angus Roxborough, uh, to coach uh, the whole Kremlin team. And that's why they were so effective. Mm. Not anymore. All these weird... So there's no one to tell him, you know what? You're becoming the butt of jokes the moment you show up on TV. That means Peskov or Sechin or whatnot, no one can tell him that. He's listening so, to... My understanding is he's listening to Patrashev right now. He's yeah. listening to Patrashev and that's and Patrashev is the most hawkish member of his inner circle. Yeah, and he's probably not 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 a great online personality also. Uh, but I, I, suppose, <laughs> I suppose why I'm saying that it's because all this uh, huge uh, experience that he has as a statesman, twenty plus years, um, can be well I won't say nullified, but but to a large extent uh, shrunk uh, by this inability to confer with people who could throw ideas at him, who could mm -hmm. basically uh, argue with him. Um, I also think that um, this burden of constantly thinking about his historical legacy, whether he's going to be compared to Peter the Great or only to Alexander II or to Berth or to Stalin, I think that that really started to disfigure mm. uh, his thinking. And I suppose I have a suspicion, and, and we'll know it very soon. I think he really, really miscalculated big time with his ultimatum. No matter what he does, it's not going to be a good out outcome for him. Whether he relaunches the invasion, goes all the way to Kiev, or whether he just recognizes the so-called republics, or whether he actually takes them, quote unquote, under protection, right. and try to pressure Kiev into something which I don't. I don't think it's pressure at all. Actually. 
I think that he made a big, big, big mistake, although the initial calculation was correct. You have a US president that invites you for the summit and unfreezes your isolation. You have a Russia-friendly government in Germany. You have a chaos, electoral case in France in which two candidates are saying, we're going to take France out to NATO. You have COVID. You have all sorts of things. And then this weird game, which is now, I think, really is coming to a close. And the element of surprise is gone. Everyone knows what he can do. And I will not be surprised, frankly speaking, if Putin starts to talk more, presents himself as a man of peace, and now that Blinken and Biden offered him a face-saving option, will pull back. My question is, what will happen after that? Because he's commander-in-chief. You know, you know, Brian, I served. These are strategic goals. He's not going to yeah, back you, off from you these don't goals. Care. These are strategic goals. Hundreds of thousands of people, because if you look at the logistics of deploying all these people, it's yeah, hundreds of thousands of personnel. No, talk to military experts. Goals. you got to use, use them or lose them. I mean, you can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you keep them around like, 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 a, like a footy ball. Uh, twice a year for what? For two telephone conversations with Joe Biden, which could have, could have them for the asking. Uh, and I think that this is something that will make maybe a few generals think. And I think that this is what's... And some generals are, are, are already openly and publicly yeah. saying... Well, they are retired generals, not too many of them, but right. because they speak for a trend. And I wonder what the mid-level bureaucracy, uh, the Putin aspirants who are 45 now, who are deputy ministers... Uh, and the business community is nervous. Uh, well, the, even the oligarchs, probably. Well, all those people are 45, 50, and they didn't really yet have the time to rob the budget blind as, as Putin has with Putin <laughs> and the rest of them. Uh, now they think, oh, God, they're going to spend another 15 years with this. And then, look, when you're 60, do you want a York? Do you want a fourth one? We right. won't have the chance, and they're going to go and lose it. That's going to be what they're going to talk mm -hmm. about. Their saunas during hunts, when the telephones are off and they're deep in the wood. I yeah. suppose there's going to be a few after that. And if I were Putin, I'd be thinking about that. Because I do think that if he has to pull back and engage on new start or uh, switching back on uh, the, the, the transponders on Russian planes flying from Kaliningrad somewhere else, been done with anyone, whether it's with Trump, with Obama, with Biden, right. with uh, President Pete Buttigieg, it doesn't matter. And I think that that may be, maybe we're standing on, on the cusp of his big, big, big defeat, yep. which will not be called so. Right. Just like there was yeah. no defeat in the Cold War, as we know, everyone won. But there was a defeat. So mm -hmm. I think that if he pulls back, uh, that's going to be a very, very serious blow to him internally, no matter what his state propaganda machine is going to say. No, a couple of thoughts on that, Kostya, and then I want to move up to to, to the current diplomacy surrounding uh, Ukraine to kind of to, to take us off. But um, a couple of things here. I mean, what I see, the road from Munich to now, I see it as a 15-year project by Putin. 
to effectively uh, achieve two things, put Russia back at the center of the attention of U.S. policymakers, uh, mission accomplished all right, for the moment. Um, and the second and is, is the restoration of empire in some form. In some form, it doesn't have to take the forms that, 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 that the old empire takes. You can call this sphere of influence or not. But some of that has been accomplished. Uh, Putin effectively, while we're all watching Ukraine, uh, the way I, as I wrote for the Atlantic Council this week, Russia's quietly uh, and softly annexed Belarus effectively for all intents and purposes as affect Belarus. Belarus is effectively an extension of Russia, yeah. at least for military purposes at the moment. So he's got one of the two countries that, that, that Russia has historically seen as important for its strategic depth on its western on its western frontier. He's got one of them, and he's going for the other one. I don't think he's going to get Ukraine. Um, I don't think he's going to get it. But this has been a 15-year project, and this is his moment to do this because this is he's never going to have a moment like this. You have a West that's divided, distracted, sullen, angry. Can't, really can't seem to get its act together. Um, so, so you have, have that. And at the same time, he sees Ukraine effectively slipping away. Um, I think it slipped away a long time ago, but the, the, the criminal case against Medvedchuk back in April, certainly in the closing of the Russian television channels in, in Ukraine, certainly drove that point home. If he thought he was going to manipulate uh, President Zelensky, he, he was badly mistaken. Um, actually, I think Zelensky, and he, he's not going to get what he wants on the interpretation of Minsk. You're noticing Moscow talking a lot about Minsk. But this is his moment, and he's not going to have a moment like this again. The West is going to recover. The West is going to get its act back together. I just, I mean, we 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 know that's the case. Um, and this this moment is going to pass. So I think he he probably thinks it probably is now or or never. What I wanted to shift out and take a, take us off the air is talk about this round of current diplomacy that was going on um, in this in the past week. I mean, you had you had German Chancellor Olaf Scholz in um, in Washington for for talks with Biden. Very interesting. I was watching that really carefully because when 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 President and Biden said if Russia invades Ukraine, Nord Stream 2 is off the table. And Schultz did not contradict him, right. um, which I thought was very interesting. You also had Emmanuel Macron in Moscow meeting with Putin in that bizarre big table in, in, the, in the Kremlin. Um, and, and you had Macron trying to kind of carve out this, this this kind of middle path saying, well, maybe maybe I can I can broker some agreement with Putin on, on some European security architecture. In the immediate aftermath of that speech, the Kremlin seemed upbeat about it. But then the next day, after the readout of the Biden Schultz meeting came out in the in the public comments afterwards, the Kremlin kind of changed its tune and said, we really can't talk to the French. We have to talk to the Americans. Dan, what is somebody who's been very experience in this in this area what did you see going on did you see macron playing his own game there or did you see a clever game a good cap good cop bad cop with biden and macron there look i mean it, you can go back to sarkozy and what he was trying to do so it's a very typical french thing so I the don't french say that. just being the french okay it's the french being the french it's not a good or a bad thing it's not a slanderous term it's just the french being the french i mean and you know i think some of the things that happened as a result we go back to that previous part of that period of where the U.S. got distracted, as you just uh, as you uh, uh, hypothesized, or just you know the divisions in Europe. I think one of the outcomes that Putin can probably uh, feel pretty good about is that while Europe is standing strong in terms of the the potential use of sanctions and you know we're moving forces to the border, I think there still is division about how to deal with Russia. I think at the end of the day, there will continue to be that division about, you know, uh, okay, after this simmers down, what is Europe's uh, posture right. for 
And it really is a difference between a, a Western Europe and, a, and an Eastern Europe with that weirdness of Hungary. And really, it's Orban. Right. Uh, it's right. probably the rest of the Hungarian people, but it's Viktor Orban, how they're going to deal with that. Um, you know, listening, I was, I would, I too was uh, surprised, maybe not impressed, but surprised, relieved that the chancellor uh, didn't push back on mm. President Biden. I think that, or, or at least, you know, sounded like they were in unison. I think that was very, delighted. Yeah. I think that's very important in order to send a message. Um, can it stick? And I think that's what Putin is going to be looking for. Is this just temporary? Is it going to stick? Constantine, to your point, yeah, the mobilization of so many troops, um, if only to have them then, you know, okay, you can put it under the cover of an exercise. Maybe you can extend them through early spring, but eventually they're going to have to go home. Um, and, you know, when the 14 crisis started with Ukraine, um, I, I was in touch with the DOD leadership and I said, look, you know, there's a tremendous amount of forces here. Here are the lessons we learned from Georgia. Beware the back door. We kept talking to Saakashvili and the Georgian leadership about self-assetia. They came in through Abkhazia and threw us off, right? And so we didn't see that. I said, don't believe what the Russians will tell you their intentions are, because they said it was not to march to the capital of Tbilisi, and yet they, you know, they had designs. And then it's to talk to the allies that border um, uh, at that time uh, Ukraine, but talk to your, the border allies often and reassure them. Uh, I think if those, if there's that realism about what could happen with the hundred thousand plus troops there, you know, I think that uh, we can keep Putin in a place where it's uncomfortable. Uh, for him, uh, and that it may well have to be that he decides after some exercises he sends them home, maybe keeps twenty thousand in the area. But I think to both of what you said, he may have overplayed his hand at this point. But Europe has to stay together. Yeah. Europe has to remain unified and not be like, okay, the Olympics are over, nothing happened. We'll we'll go easy on you now. That would be the that would play into well, his- yeah. Yeah, no, this is – I mean if he invades, we're in a new world basically. Yeah. If he invades, we're, we're in a Cold War. So if he doesn't invade, then yeah, we may all just revert to our default positions and that's dangerous. Costa, we're really pushing up against the end here. I'm watching the clock. Uh, last word to you quickly if you would. I think that if the past is anything to go by, then Putin would like to exacerbate uh, the tensions that exist. And now seeing that essentially Georgia is marginalized. And I think that five hours with Macron, it doesn't mean they were all, you know, just drinking vodka there. And I think that that there's a frequent mistake in Moscow, taking French, traditional French desire to perform independently on the global stage. It's being confused with the desire to pick up a fight with the United States no matter what. And I think that this is not what Macron wants to do. Mm. I think that uh, he wants to be seen as a statesman in the run-up to the election. And that means showing some independence. But I think that it couldn't have been very easy for Putin. And regarding what Putin can do, as I said, he wants to exacerbate the tensions, to deepen the rift. Uh, I'd say that doing something about the so-called republics uh, will be something that will work uh, to his benefit. uh, Because... You mean the DNR and the LNR? The DNR and the LNR, so called. Because it will not be, strictly speaking, an invasion. Everyone knows that Russian troops are already there. So you can say, well, I'm taking these areas under protection because the Ukrainian Nazis are shelling Donbass. And um, look, uh, you Germans, you French, uh, go and tell Zelensky that unless his volunteer battalions, which are not there, uh, stop shelling uh, Russian kindergartens in Luhansk. I'm going to do something rash. Uh, go and tell him to adopt Minsk three. 
in which the first first five points will be on Ukraine to protect. Uh, and he may count on Frau Merkel, who has not much to do now, flying to Kiev and trying to mediate and talk about the legacy of Second World War, and that's kind of a traditional uh, German stuff. So it may be like that, but there is a problem. He wants the to pull, pull Merkel out of retirement? Now, and I've been there three times last year, the Ukraine of now is not the Ukraine of 2015. And I think that yeah. this is an extreme... You won't yeah. be able to pressure Zelensky. Because Zelensky doesn't want to fly out of the window of the presidential. No, presidential. Yeah, no, he would have to face his public, and his public would not have it. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose that Putin doesn't have a lot of good cards to play to die. And of course, launching a full-scale invasion going to get well, he may may do that, but that it will look horrible. It's going to be like 1940 transported into TikTok time, you know. Yeah. And, yeah. And this, this is not going to, even all the Putin Thursday in Berlin will have to shut up for a long time. Yes, yeah, that'll change the game. I, I mean, I, I've heard the I've heard the Donbass variant kind of put out there. I, I just find it hard to believe that Putin's going to go through all this trouble to get something that he already has. Well, I think there are two scenarios there. One is he's legalizing uh, Russian presence there by, again, quote unquote, inverted commas, taking them under protection, probably even recognizing them. And he says, I saved the Russians. That's my achievement. Mm. And, but that will create a problem because there's going to be a lot of people saying, well, we don't care what the Germans say, U.S. Congress, for example. We're going to do sanctions again because this is not what we expected. It's an invasion. And then it's going to be a debate about what constitutes invasion and what not. But, you know, there are lots of independent players that can decide that they, they can act. Uh, but there is another option. Uh, now the so-called state Duma, which is a pocket parliament, right, is creating, I see that, uh, is going to propose to Putin to recognize the so-called republics on the 14th of February. We'll see what will happen because Putin may say, well, I was always saying it's Ukrainian territory. I'm a man of peace. I'm a new incarnation of Mahatma Gandhi for Europe. We have to talk. <laughs> and you know what? The Russian propaganda machine will switch, well, quicker before you drink a cup of coffee to this new narrative. That could also be an option. And there's one thing I want to say very briefly. Uh, you know, since we mentioned France, Georges Clemenceau, the former French, French prime minister, great statesman, once said that you judge a man by his failures, because that's when he strived he, to achieve something. With Dan here, I want to say thanks to the George W. Bush administration, which is quite rare, I know. Because even when they failed, they strived nobly, especially with regard to Russia, Georgia, Ukraine, the post-Soviet Spain. They really wanted to look at the bright side. So I, as a Russian, I want to thank them for that. I would add, and we got to wrap it up, folks, because uh, I, I can continue this all day. Um, but my awesome production team in Arlington, Texas, if I do, I'm sure will either invade my apartment here in uh, in, 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 in Washington or uh, impose sanctions on me and ban, ban me from SWIFT. So I got to wrap it up. Um, unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. I would like to remind you that you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. My, I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm going to 
Assistant Professor of Practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Washington, D.C. has been Daniel Fata, who served as U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Europe and NATO in the administration of President George W. Bush. And joining us from Vilnius has been Konstantin Eggert, a columnist on Russian affairs at Deutsche Welle. Thank you both for enlightening discussion. Great. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. Thank you. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Zachary Smith is ably filling in for Lance Ligas in the virtual control room, keeping all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. Zachary's also doing double duty, handling our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at PowerVertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at PowerVertical. Join us in again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.